All right, team, I'm very excited because the men's weekends are live. You can head on over to mantox.com and sign up for one of the men's weekends right now. We have one live that will be at the end of March in Texas, and you can easily fly there from anywhere in the world. I've been doing these weekends for seven or eight years now, and they always sell out and they always sell out pretty quickly. But one of the big questions that I get is what happens at these weekends? Because there's a little bit of mystery around the weekends. And what I can say is a few things. Number one, these weekends are the place for you to do deep, interpersonal, in-person work in nature, in a beautiful setting, a beautiful environment where everything's provided and taken care of for you. And you get to do that work with a really incredible group of men who are willing and wanting to do that work as well. So you get a group of like-minded men that oftentimes become lifelong friends. What I've seen from past weekends is that guys create some incredibly, incredibly deep bonds and relationships to the point where they have new men that they are exploring life with. We take you through an initiation process meant to help you confront and challenge the part of your life and the part of yourself that has been holding you back, whether that's been holding you back from the type of relationship that you want or sex life that you want or intimacy or finances or body or confidence that you want. We take you and the other men on a journey that allows you to confront the part of yourself that has been holding you back in your life. And so a lot of men come to these weekends ready for change, ready for transformation. And we put you through the paces. So we give you tools, we give you resources, we walk you through real practices that you can take home with you and do on the other side of the weekend so that you are resourced when you leave the weekend, not just with a group of men that are going to be supporting you and holding you accountable, but also with real practical knowledge and tools and resources that you can use on a daily basis to help you transform your life. So head on over, Man Talks. Dot com. You can check out the men's weekend under training or just mantalks.com forward slash men's dash weekend. Again, if you want to sign up, do so quickly because this will sell out. And ladies that are listening to this, if you're wanting your man to show up and to do some work, this is a great opportunity. Maybe sign him up, maybe invite him out. Just saying. See you all there. All right, Henry, welcome back to the Man Talk Show. How have you been? I've been uh, pretty good, very busy, and I'm really excited to be back chatting with you again, Connor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, your episode, our conversation was very, very popular. People loved it. I loved it personally. So selfishly, uh, I wanted to have you back on. And my producer very much loved it. He's a big fan of your work. And we were talking about 2024. And he said, you, you, you know, well, we should have Henry Shipman back on. And I said, Absolutely. Let's make, let's make that happen. Because we were, we were sort of talking about some of the interesting people that I've had on over the years. You know, we've had Rupert Spira on, or, or Spira, I never get his name right, and, and a number of other wonderful meditation and just sort of like mindfulness teachers. And so I thought this was going to be the year of bringing back some people that I wanted to go deeper in with. So I think we're going to do that today. I think where we are going to start, we're going to talk a little bit about koans we're going to talk about meditation. We're going to talk about a number of things. I am curious to start this conversation with a question that I'm interested to see what your, your answer is. Do men and women experience different resistance and challenges when it comes to meditation? Because I've worked with men for a decade 
And I have found that we as men have very fast minds. And there's just constantly stuff. It's like the analogy I'll use is I rode motorcycles for a period of time in my life. And I had a not obsession, but a curiosity for seeing how fast the motorcycle could go most of the time. <laughs> and, and so I kind of equate the male mind like this, like how fast can my mind actually go? But I'm curious from your experience as a teacher, do men and women face different or similar problems and challenges when it comes to meditation? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it would perhaps begin with certain sort of archetypes of people with certain kinds of inclinations and motivations. And then mm. on the basis of that, there might be certain consequent challenges and obstacles and things. So like one archetype definitely is the young male who's just determined to get, once they get the idea that there's a real adventure involved in, in spiritual seeking that is actually you know, once, you, once a young man gets the idea that, that actually it's kind of cool that you can go on this journey that takes you to mind-blowing revelations about the nature of your mind, about the nature of experience and of being, of being human that you might otherwise not have thought of at all. So when a young man gets that idea on board, like maybe they've read something like Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, which is this short, fantastic novel about a very deep spiritual quest so if a young man gets that idea that, man, I can go on this mind-blowing journey to a totally different experience of being alive, then probably, I mean, that is one of the archetypes that we see in you know, meditation gatherings, is young guys who are hell-bent on enlightenment, hell-bent on awakening. You know, they wanna, they've heard that, yeah, there's this thing called mindfulness, which is all about stress reduction and calming down. They're not really interested in that. They're much more interested in this adventure of self-discovery that is sort of a mind-blowing change in, in, in experience. And the challenges there are that um, it's one of those strange paradoxes you know, in the spiritual life that the more we seek something, I mean, it can be good to have the, the motivation and the aspiration and the, the kind of almost sort of ambition that will drive us. But actually, the more we're seeking some kind of other state, it can be we're just going to push it away. So mm. it's one of the challenges of, of that kind of male energy is to, yeah, okay, I have an aspiration. I know there's something real here, which there is, by the way, but I'm not going to, I'm going to temper my gusto and I'm going to kind of more gently allow myself to be present and sort of trust that the journey will unfold by itself as long as I keep going and showing up daily and all the rest of it. And that can be a bit boring for a guy, especially a young mm. guy. No, no, I want to go fast. You know? <laughs> I, don't wanna, I don't want to be that patient person. So that's the challenge. With women, I mean, I don't know whether this is just too much of a generalization, but maybe there's something in the you know, female psyche that's a bit more kind of cyclically minded things in cycles more easily, as opposed to the male linear thing. I got to mm. go from A to B, you know, or A to Z, you know, the guy. And women, maybe there's a little bit more of a patience and a sort of, a kind of wisdom that's, yeah, more, somehow I think of it as more cyclical. But I, 
I don't know. You know, I could say that like with my wife, who's a fairly regular meditator, actually, but she's she has her important sort of shifts happen to her through her practice. But she definitely doesn't, it's more of a settling deeper and deeper rather than let me see if I can get over there, you know? And mm. I don't know whether, I've seen, of course, I've had loads of students, probably maybe even more who are women, I'm not sure, just because the world of meditation probably draws at somewhat more women than men, you know, maybe 60, 40 or something. I don't exactly know. Why is that? Just from your, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I like to tell my guests, I reserve the right to interrupt during yeah, this good. conversation. Should, yeah. <laughs> why, why do you think that is, that meditation and maybe just mindfulness and therapy in general, maybe, maybe that's yeah. too broad, but why meditation specifically tends to draw more women than men? I mean, it's a, that's a big question, but I would say that isn't there some sort of cultural inheritance whereby, you know, women have traditionally been more about relationships, therefore more about caring, more about well-being, and men have, I mean, I think actually this is culturally specific, so there have been certainly historical societies where it was, it was almost flipped the other way. But in the predominant uh, modality of Western traditional culture, you know, there's been the archetype of men kind of going out and fighting their way in the world and coming back home and, you know, and women are taking care of the home more. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. I I'm certainly wouldn't hazard a position that that's in any way necessary or biological or anything. But Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I think when you look back at the lineage or the history of Zen and, and the practice of it, I mean, it's predominantly men. Yeah, but, but you in, know, there's in, a. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, there is a whole thing that, that, that there is a great number of female lineages that have been totally suppressed, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, and there's been a lot of work in the last two, three, four decades to revive that. You know, there's some great mm -hmm. books on that. The, the, the female lineages of Buddhism, of Zen, of meditation generally, spiritual wisdom. You know, there's a whole, I mean, I think, I think we have to acknowledge that spiritual wisdom is. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely upheld by both genders, all mm. genders. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't maybe tease apart different flavors, you know, and say, yeah, most of the male spirituality is more like this, or most of the females more like that. But it's a hazardous thing to do because it's so culturally specific, you know. Mm. And um, I'd be a little, I'd be, I'm cautious to say too much on it. But I, but I, you know, I think there is still a thing where. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where there's just, you know, the, gla the glass ceiling for women in leadership and so on is, is still there. And, and um, there are still stereotypes and, and, and male, I don't know, yeah, leadership is just, there's more emphasis on that still, and there shouldn't be, you know, we've still got too many, there's too much bias still, clearly, you know, and a lot of it's unconscious as well. It's like Christianity, right? Like the the story of Mary, you know, largely missed yeah. the mark. There's certain, you know, there's certain lore, I guess you could say, or or stories yeah. of Christ wanting to sort of have Mary be the the primary disciple that that you know having the faith be sort of passed on through her, and that kind of got lost. And so I don't want to take us too far off into the weeds, but I, you know, I think I was just curious about it because I only have my experience as a man who has tried to meditate 
and who have fe- who has initially found it brutally frustrating, you know, and irritating yeah. to almost no end, right? Like trying to get myself as a young man to sit down and to close my eyes and to just breathe was a gargantuan task. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember... I remember when I was living in Vancouver and I started reading all these Zen books. You know, I was reading Alan Watts, The Way of Zen. Yeah, I was reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which, you know, it's just sort of like a timeless one. Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind from Suzuki. And it's kind of like going through all these books and starting to try and practice. And I really liked the idea of having a meditative practice. And I really liked the idea of what, you know, all of these teachers were saying and talking about. But then when I had to sit with myself and just breathe for a few moments, what I became aware of was anarchy, you know, for lack of a better term, (laughs) just internal chaos, right? It was like, what's happening? And, 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 you know, I think for me, when when I've worked with men who are wanting to meditate, that's a very common experience. And so I don't know what that's like for women maybe they have a very similar experience and i like that notion of like that cyclical nature versus the linear nature i think that's probably true in as a general sense but what it was what was it like for you did you sit down and reach enlightenment immediately or you know was there a sort of getting to know you process that you had to go through was it challenging i came to it i started meditating i did a little bit in my teens by reading Ram Das, I got into it. But I really started in my mid twenty. I was 24 when I started. And um, I started with transcendental meditation, and you know, which was the most popular kind in London at the time. And I did it really religiously. Like you were supposed to do 20 minutes twice a day or don't bother was kind of how they taught it. And, and I did. I was desperate. I was really unhappy. And I had this really severe skin condition and and I was, you know, depressed and anxious and, and really not enjoying life at all, you know. And, and it really, almost immediately, it helped me because, first of all, I slept a ton. I hadn't realized how exhausted I was and how short of sleep. And then I, and then, you know, wasn't, I hadn't been doing it long, maybe even a few weeks, at the most a few months, when I started to realize, God, I had this painful feeling in my chest every time I sat down to do it. And I wondered, what's wrong with me? It's like a bar is in my chest or something. And, and I was talking with a friend who meditated and who was more experienced than me. And he introduced me to another friend who had been going to therapy. And she said, well, maybe you're talking about an emotion. Has that occurred to you? <laughs> and it's like, what? You know, this is an emotion. And really, I was, I was actually so emotionally illiterate that I didn't realize you know, what this sensation in my chest was. And it was indeed an emotion. And somehow, one way or another, I started on therapy fairly soon after starting to meditate. So I recognized it maybe a slightly different form, but my own equivalent of inner anarchy like you. And I, really, I was desperate in those days. And so I was ready to try therapy as well. I think the meditation helped me get a little bit more, just enough kind of resting of the nervous system to at least recognize how freaked out the nervous system was, how dysregulated it was. And I, I kind of, 
you know, I was in a place where it was like, what the hell? I'll try it, you know? And, and I was lucky that actually I found this really nice therapy group of people my age with a really interesting, inventive therapist from California, actually. An interesting guy had been, had been barred from practicing in California, I think. And it was a very unusual guy. And anyway, he was living in London and he had this Saturday morning group. And it was kind of cool, actually. There were great people doing it. There was a young racing driver. There were people in different careers, starting out in different careers and the arts. And it was kind of an interesting group of people that I felt quite uh, comfortable with, you know. And mm. it was an amazing education. So I was doing the meditation and the therapy kind of in parallel. So I think if I hadn't been, the inner chaos would have been harder to handle in the meditation. And to this day, I think for a lot of people, it's quite a, a healthy combination, you know, to have, if we're meditating, at least it's good to be open to some kind of therapeutic or emotional development. And if we're doing some therapy, for most people, it's probably really helpful to do some meditation, which kind of balances the nervous system. You know, mm. you'll, go, you'll go further in the therapy quicker kind of thing, you know, very lightly. Yeah, we, whenever I work with clients one-on-one, -on -one, we will always start with breath work or meditation, at least, at least five to 10 minutes. Yeah, love the beginning of everything. And when we do, we have something called the Alliance and we have you know, several hundred men that are in there and at the beginning of any community call that we have, breath work or meditation. And it's just kind of like anything that I do, we start with, we start with that. Yeah. And for a number of reasons, as I think you're talking about, but I, you know, I think that for, for many men, it's one of those things where we all kind of conceptually know that there's benefits. It's like, I know that this is good for me, but I'm not really too sure why. And I'm not too sure if the use case has fully sold me on it. You know, I think that's the, that's like the general consensus that I've pulled out from men, you know, like in the UK, I believe that doctors are, if I read the research correct, doctors are actually encouraged to prescribe meditation as a treatment for depression which I love because what they've found is that meditation is as helpful, if not more helpful than any of the medications that they can prescribe. So that to me is quite fascinating. You know, I think sometimes guys, we like data, we like research and those things can be helpful. But when people start to meditate, what are some of the normal resistance pieces that they can start to, or expect to bump up against? Like what What's normal? How contextualize this for us? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, first of all, we gotta we gotta just sort of clarify that there's there's really different ways of meditating. And the two, probably the biggest division is whether you're you're sitting unguided. So you may have a bit of instruction on how do you do this. Okay, so you follow your breath or you count your breaths or something like that, but you're kind of doing it on your own versus guided meditations. Guided meditations, these days, you know, millions of people use apps. So you switch on your app, hit a meditation, and you get guided. So that means that you don't have to go through, I mean, it's much, much easier to learn to meditate with guided meditation. Because you, you know, you're constantly being brought back to the present moment by the teacher. You know, they're simply they're saying, 
hey, focus on your hands or focus on your breath. And just the fact that you're hearing a voice will interrupt whatever stream of thinking you're, you're otherwise possibly caught in. You know, on the other hand, if you've been told, follow your breath and count your breaths in some pattern, which is, you know, that's what I was taught when I started doing Zen meditation, and, and many are, you know, it's all this common thing in any sort of basic mindfulness meditation might, might be breath like that. And so if you're not being actively being guided, you have to do that yourself. And everybody who tries to do it themselves will find, I'm off. I got to, if you're counting to 10, I got to three and I don't know what happened then, you know, and I don't know where I've been or how long I've been away, but now I'm back. I've realized I'm back and I just don't know what happened. So as we do it more, you know, actually there's advantages both ways. You know, of course it's great if you're getting the guided because it's easier and you're kind of picking up the skills maybe quicker, getting a sense of what it can be like quicker. On the other hand, if you're kind of going cold turkey, you're thrown in, you're on your own, it's much harder, but you are developing the skills yourself sooner, at least hopefully you are. It's also possible actually to get set in certain habits and hardly even realize it, you know. So there's a risk both ways. Mm. They both got pluses and minuses, but if you're doing it on your own, the, the, the biggest thing to learn is to recognize that, yeah, we sort of have an outward system of sense experience where that would include being aware of the breath because that's a body thing and feeling the body in various ways and hearing sounds and seeing sights. Even if our eyes are closed, we still see a, kind of see the, the grayscale with closed eyes. We have that system, but we also have an inner system which consists of thoughts and feelings. And you know, we hear talk in the mind, voices in the mind, we see images in the mind, movies play in the mind, we have emotions, and often all three come together. We get totally transfixed by an inner movie with emotions keeping us really locked in. And then minutes can go on, and even, you know, five, ten minutes might go on. And then suddenly, oh, wait a minute. Whoa, where have I just been? You know, well, I've been off in some imagining or some memory or whatever, or some planning, you know. So learning how to catch that a bit sooner, uh, learning how to actually be aware of, you know, what thinking is, to start knowing the actual phenomenology or, you know, what the phenomenon of thinking truly is. That's a big learning experience and to realize wow this happens more than i realized you know this thinking thing and not being present is really quite common you know and um starting to catch it so that we are aware of being alive you know more which is just cool to actually recognize oh yeah i'm alive right now yeah there's i've been over here smiling and sort of like almost giggling to myself, recalling as you were talking, my experience with meditation. Because I, I started meditation with Zen. That was my entry point. Yeah. And there was no teacher. And you know, I'd read the books and I was sort of sitting. And as I was telling you before we actually started recording, I was very consumed with the postures. You know, like I had read the books and so I was like, well, I have to, in order to like get the full benefit of Zen meditation, I have to be in full Lotus. Mm -hmm. And I have years of playing hockey 
And so my hips are very tight. My hip flexors, my hips are very tight. And so I spent weeks and months stretching, you know, trying to get myself into this position. My knees were hurting, you know, and I'm like, how the hell do people sit here <laughs> in this pretzel position? You know, and finally I finally I gave, you know, it humbled my ego, which I am sure it's supposed to do in some way. And I gave up on the posture that I was trying to form into and just let myself sit on a meditation cushion in whatever way I needed to. Yeah. And then I started the, the counting, right? Each inhale, one, and then the exhale, and then inhale again, two, and all the way up to 10, and then back down, and all the way up to 10 and back down. And it was a very interesting process because my mind was so active. And I think one of the things that maybe deterred me in the beginning was just this natural frustration with why can't I hold my mind on just counting to 10 and watching the inhale? Like this is absurd. Yeah. So I think this kind of comes back to something that you, you sort of floated out there that I think is a wonderful question, which is what is thinking? What is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I reckon if each of us studies it, we'll come to a similar conclusion, I hope, which is that thinking primarily consists of two things, either talk in the mind, literally hearing little radio broadcasts in the mind, and or little movies, little image sequences playing in the mind. And quite often they do come together, but they don't have to. Sometimes we can be sitting and gazing out the window and oh, I've just been thinking and then dial back in, you know, retroactively, what was actually happening when I was quote unquote thinking? Oh yeah, I was running through that thought about X or Y and it was speech. It was like hearing a voice in my mind. That's what it actually was. And I mean, it can be, of course, if someone's a musician, they might hear tunes, they might hear instruments, sure. 99% of the time for 99% of us, it's talk in the mind and or images in the mind. And what, what can make it harder to be aware of that is that very often they bring up some degree of emotion. It doesn't have to be negative emotion. It often is actually for some evolutionary reasons, but it doesn't have to be. But just some emotional engagement with the subject matter the speech is about will make us kind of lock in all the more to it and be even less aware that we've been kind of drawn into a virtual experience. And it's very convincing and holds us. And, you know, one change and we realize, oh, yeah, I was just thinking. But when we're in it, it's really hard to recognize, oh, I'm in it. I'm hearing a voice, I'm seeing, or more than one even, and I'm seeing images. But we can become able to do that. So now, here's the thing. Traditional meditation methodologies, like, like Zen, well, it's got several methodologies, but they're not, because they've got a long-range goal, we want to, you know, in Zen, it's like, we know that somebody can actually go through a major shift whereby they're not so convinced 
that they are the person they think they are. And they're freed up into a much bigger sense of who they are that can even in- somehow include all things. And really, it's not them, it's some greater reality that they never knew they were, or something like that. You know, that's a pretty big possibility that's offered there. So they kind of don't bother too much with the, the low level, entry level, <laughs> nitty gritty of practice. But it's kind of a shame because it's really important and really helpful to get that stuff down. So modern mindful, the modern mindfulness movement, you know, which is, which is in a way what most people engage with when they start meditating today, you know, of the, of the 90 million or whatever it is that has tried meditation, mostly it's some kind of form of modern mindfulness, mostly. It can mean a lot of different things, but it tends to be a bit more careful about the experience of emotion and stress and a little bit of parsing out what thinking is. And they may not get to the point of, is it talk, is it image? They may not go there, but let's say at least recognize, oh yeah, I've been thinking, you know. So are you saying that it's beneficial as you start to meditate, as you start to develop some type of practice to differentiate between, oh, that was just chatter versus I was caught in a movie? Like, is that is there is there a benefit to that at some point? Yeah, yeah, I think there probably is because the more you can sort of understand the different strands involved in being caught up in internal experience like that, rather than aware of what's happening here and now, the more we understand the different strands of it, the easier it is to unpick it. And really, mm. it's only three strands: it's talk, it's image and it's emotion sensation. But when they braid together, it's pretty powerful, and it's really easy to get caught in the vortex and quite hard to get out of it. But I wouldn't, so I, you know, the thing is, I wouldn't, you just said something like, it went knowing when it's just chatter. But to me, see, I, I wouldn't say, I think chatter is kind of beautiful. I think the fact that our minds have the capacity to come up with internal talk, I think it's amazing. You know, so I don't disparage it it's at all. It's just as we grow in mindfulness, we get more able to see it, you know, and appreciate it, you know. Yeah, I think I'm uh, always conscious of the listener because I get people writing in all the time. And, and I want to make this practical and tactical in some ways because. I, I agree with what you're saying, right? I think I had this moment, my wife and I were talking the other day, and I don't necessarily exactly know where it came from, but I said, isn't it a wondrous, awe-invoking, and beautiful thing that we are, as far as we can tell, the only creature on the planet that can doubt itself? Like, what an interesting experience that we are one of the only creatures that can doubt ourselves, you know, and have doubt in who we are and and the choices that we should make and what action yes. we should take and what we should say. And it's like, you know, yes. when normally that element or that that aspect of the human experience is something that, you know, most of the time we just want to run away from. It's like, I don't want to, yeah. you know, I doubt in myself. What oh, like, why can't I just stop doing that? And yeah. and I just thought, like, what an interesting thing. And she was like, Yes, you know. I think we. I think we were actually eating dinner. She looked at me like, "Yeah, <laughs> you know, like what, like what's going on in your head over there?" <laughs> so yeah. I, I agree. I think that the chatter is 
the chatter can be this wondrous gift that can lead us back to back to something special. I would be remiss because I know after having worked with so many men that I can hear the guys being like, okay, but what do I do? What do like yeah. when when yeah. I become present to that voice is there, the chatter is there, or the imagery yeah. is there, or the emotion yeah. is there. Yeah. Like, what do I do? And do I handle those things differently? Is how I handle the chatter different from the image or the emotion? So let's just piece this apart. <laughs> I'm really going to go in on this, Henry. I'm, I apologize in advance. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. It's, it's my bread and butter. You know, yeah, um, I would say uh, where we want to get to is where mindfulness is a beautiful state of mind. It's got a flavor of love and it's a deep awareness. It's a very patient awareness and, a, and an appreciative awareness. So where we want to get to is being in that state of appreciative awareness and welcoming whatever is arising and appreciating it. So that means that if it's talk in the mind arising, no problem. If it's images in the mind arising, no problem. If it's emotion in the sort of roughly heart area arising, no problem. So there's a kind of built-in compassion that comes with it that allows us to, yeah, I think the right word is appreciate or even cherish experience. You know, so then, yes, yeah, sometimes whew, the mind's blissfully quiet and there's this broad peace and we're just resting and it's silent and it's beautiful. That's wonderful. But I think kind of a true mindfulness will enjoy that and will also appreciate when the mind's busy. Because this is how it is, because that's how it is right now. And to be able to appreciate it. So um, if that's the end point kind of thing, how do we get there? Right. So, so the, what we, what, what the first step for most sort of novice meditators is that they started to be aware that there is, there is all this stuff going on in their minds and maybe their heart area as well. And they don't want it because I'm supposed to feel good meditating. Aren't I supposed to feel good kind of thing? And this is getting in the way and it's, it's frustrating me because it's not the way I think it should be. I should be doing this practice that gets it all quiet and gets rid of all that. So then it's a double frustration. And you know, obviously that's not the way to go. You know, so I mean, one of my teachers actually, a Zen teacher, funny enough, who's a bit unusual among Zen teachers, he said, the three most important things in practice, Henry, allow allow, allow. And ah, man, it sank in with me. I thought, because that was so kind of counter to the kind of schooling I'd had. By the way, I did maybe five years of the transcendental meditation and I switched to Zen for various reasons. But, you know, some of the training I got in Zen was pretty kind of brutal. It was like, you know, stop thinking. Well, how, how do I do that? You know, it doesn't work, that instruction, you know, don't move at all, you know, but I'm, my knee's crazy. I've got, to, I've got to unbend my leg. No, you can't move. You know, it's, it's silly. I think now, you know, as a young man, I kind of, I kind of liked it. I wanted to measure up to that, but really, I don't know. I think it just slows things up in the long run, probably. But that aside, the methodology that I like to use, one of them, because there's a lot, you know, is simply labeling. Is like using a little label in the mind to let me know what's going on. So if there's talk in the mind, I might use the label talk. 
In other words, I just say to myself in my mind, talk, talk. If there's a lot of imagery, I'll say to myself in the mind, images, images. Because that way, it just helps me be aware. You know. By the way, that's, that's basically a methodology from Shinzen Young, who's a great meditation teacher. Uh, he's a little bit of a sort of hybrid guy, a bit of a passion, a bit of Zen, a bit of other stuff, and the interesting guy. But it also goes back in the tradition to just label what's going on. So it helps us, it helps support our coming to a place of mindful awareness. Yeah, I think that's, that's very helpful. I know for myself, when I started meditating, there was almost like a desire to swipe those things away. You know, thoughts would come up in the mind. And my immediate response was like, well, how do I get rid of that? Or, you know, an image would come up and it's, okay, that shouldn't, that shouldn't be there. How do I, you know, how do I move that out of the way and get back to what I was doing? Or a frustration would then arise of, you know, how come I can't stick with the, the breath and the, you know, the, the process that I'm, that I'm working on here. And it is, you know, it is this sort of surprising practice in the allowing that I think you're talking about that is one of the most potent elements for me personally has been one of the most potent elements for me personally as somebody who wants to drive at things very quickly wants to get to the end destination very fast wants to have mastered things you know like that and to really sort of like bask in the in the sunlight of the process yeah. and of the happening right now I think one yeah. of the most beautiful meditations that I did and have done consistently was just this Alan Watts meditation where he he talks about the happening and this sort of the dual nature of you're the one doing the breathing, but the breathing is happening to you, right? You're the one seeing the object, but the object is also happening to you, right? You're listening and the sound is happening to you. And like all of that, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of like the collapsing of the of the binary. Um, it has been a very interesting practice, but none of that's possible without the allowing. And I find that it's expanded out into my life. You know, I have a three-year-old now, and so there's a lot of allowing. <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> there's a tremendous yeah. amount of like, yeah. well, surrender to this. You know, it's like I can't force him to not feel the way that he's feeling, or I can't yeah. stop him from having the tantrum. And so there's, it, it's really. I'm just so thankful every day that I started this practice, you know, you know, 12 years ago, because I just think I would, I would have a lot harder time in life today. So I know I said a bunch yep. of stuff. I would love for you to yep. just comment on that because I'm sure that there's some follow-up that you have. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, for one thing, you know, just to, on that last note, like what life might be without meditation, you know, I've been doing it since my mid twenties and my life has been totally transformed by it in very, of course, I don't have the counterfactual, but I know what it was like when I started meditating. You know, there's, there's so many ways that it has just helped me grow as a human being, you know, and to me, it makes complete sense that if every day there's a space where you're do devoting yourself to simply existing, you know, just really recognizing the fact that you exist, which you won't do forever, you know, just that alone is like, it seems to me wise to do that because it, it's so easy to never do that. 
to never actually recognize the bare fact of existing, you know, which is kind of the most important thing of all. And that brings this different perspective on life, you know, which more and more is possible to kind of embody where we, yeah, we, we can give our energies very thoroughly to something, but at the same time, not be quite so totally caught up in it, be deeply committed and right into a project. But also there's this slightly bigger picture where, wow, I'm a being alive in the universe, you know, and that just gives this wider perspective, bigger picture all the way through. So that just acknowledging what you said about the, the benefits mm. of it, but coming back to the why allowing can be such a kind of potent tool, actually. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because we, we're so used to sort of pushing to make things change, you know, applying pressure in the desired direction to get them to change. And this is almost the opposite, saying, no, we're going to going to just, hey, just pull back a little bit. And it's some weird law of the universe, I think, that when things are left alone, they change the way we want them to. But when we're trying to change them, they might sometimes, but they might well not. And mm. it's a weird thing. It's the Zen has got stories, lots of stories. Like there's one guy, there's a young man who's a very kind of gifted sort of Zen student, he awakened young, a blinding revelation about the nature of things. And his teacher said, you got to go up and found a monastery on such and such a mountaintop. Somebody, you know, a monastery is needed there kind of thing. So yeah, he packs up his stuff. He goes off. He builds a little hut for himself, a thatch hut, starts living in it. He's got some seeds and knows how to forage and, you know, just supports himself. He lives there for seven years waiting for people to come and to start building the monastery. Nobody comes. So he thinks, okay, it's enough. Packs up, leaves. As he's going down the mountain, this is the, the legend or folktale, he runs into a tiger. And the tiger grabs the sleeve of his coat, pulls him back up the mountain. And so this, okay, I won't leave yet. It unpacks and carries on living there. The next day, some wandering monk walks up the mountain, says, I'd heard there was an enlightened master up here. It must be you. And then the next day, three Zen monks arrive, and the next day, five, and, and the monastery starts to flourish. And so basically, the day he gave up, he opened up you know, the possibility for it to happen. That's kind of the, <laughs> the moral. So the, it's a very Zen kind of a story. I love that. I think there's, I kind of feel there's some truth to that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like I, I witnessed that in my, my toddler every day, you know, <laughs> see that, see that in my three-year-old every day where I was, you know, he's, he's obsessed with Play-Doh right now. And so, you, you know, he wants to drive his train through the Play-Doh and he wants to throw the Play-Doh at the wall. Like, I mean, he's just testing it out. And I've noticed that when I get too into his play, is when mm -hmm. a lot of pushback happens, right? And, you know, like I didn't want, like this morning is a perfect example. He was trying to drive his like little, he's got like a little Thomas the Tank Engine. He's trying to drive Thomas the Tank Engine through his purple Play-Doh. And I said, no, no, we don't do that, right? We, we don't do that. You're going to cog up his wheels. No, don't do that. And then, he, and then he catches on to that immediately. And immediately he's like, oh, I'm going to play the game of now testing you. Right, so I'm gonna put I'm gonna put Thomas 
an inch away from the Plato, and is this okay? And if Thomas is right beside the Plato, is that okay? And and then, but when I when I allow and say, you know, he can watch and whatnot, like Thomas can watch you play with the Plato, that's totally fine. And it just kind of got me thinking about how that translates into, you know, when thoughts come up, it's like, I don't want you here. Don't do that. You know, don't don't I, this. You shouldn't be here. And and that that resistance to what is naturally emboldens it in a way is that accurate it is it is it gives it strength it gives it more power you're trying to push a sword away it'll just come back all the stronger Mm. it's it's exactly right because we're we're actually feeding it by trying to get rid of it you can see the on the converse if we're allowing actually allowing is a property of mindful awareness anyway so if we're starting to allow, we're already, without really maybe even recognizing it at first, we're actually stepping into one of the dimensions of mindful awareness, which is that it's really patient. You know? and, and it's like kind of the moment we allow, another way to look at it, I think, would be the moment we're allowing, we're actually getting a different affect. You know, so, so for example, I mean, here's another thing. We talked mostly about talk and image and working with them, not so much yet about feelings, emotions. So this is a really helpful thing for that. When, if there's a negative emotion, let's say anxiety, maybe just mild anxiety, some worry, not, not full-blown anxiety, panic attack or something, just mild anxiety. Yeah, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's in my mid-chest or something. You know, It's yucky. I don't want it mostly many of us would just immediately try to distract ourselves. Go to the fridge, go to the phone, go to the call a friend or whatever, social media, something just to distract ourselves from it. But if we stay with it, it's going to be uncomfortable and we're not going to like that. We're going to maybe try to suppress it some other way just by giving ourselves something that will give us a good feeling, maybe listening to a piece of music or getting in a conversation or some piece of work. I'd rather not feel it. I'm going to quickly bury it and by bringing in a different feeling. The meditative approach is, okay, mindfulness is a patient observer. How can I observe this and allow it? And so maybe this is a little technical, but I think it's quite interesting. See, if we can allow it, what we're actually doing is we've got one level of emotion, which is the anxiety that's uncomfortable, but allowing is a kind of affect, you know, has an affective quality, has an emotional flavor, which is one of patience, welcome, kind, a sort of gentle, mild form of kindness. It's letting something be. And we're actually experiencing that as well as the anxiety. And what can happen is simply that the emotional flavor of allowing overtakes or becomes more prevalent than the emotional flavor of the, of the worry. And when that happens, the worry remains without being a problem. And it becomes a beautiful sensation, not worry anymore. It becomes this, but it hasn't actually gone. We can still detect it as a sensory sort of flavor in the body. So I'm using language a bit loosely, but we we might feel a kind of vibrational signature of the worry, but we've no longer got this difficult negative emotion going on. 
because mm. we've migrated. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say. I, I mean, I, I love the way that you're describing this, and I think it's it contextualizes, and I think gives real real guidance on like how we can approach that, not just during meditation, but just in life in general. You know, hard conversations Absolutely. with a partner, hard feelings or experiences that are happening internally within us or the work environment or what have you. So that's I think right. that's very good. And I think it's, I, hopefully, the, you know, I, I think people that are listening can contextualize that and begin to practice that. And I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is like it is, this is very practice-oriented and that life is like one sort of big playing field for continual practice. Yes, I totally <laughs> of, agree. Yeah. Of allowing and you know, I think that we can get caught in, I think last time I said this, but we can get caught in this sort of like chasing Satori, right? This like chasing Kensho or like chasing enlightenment, yep. basically, yep. where yep. we're continually trying to get to this place, which is anxiety-free and pain-free and yep. suffering-free. Yep. And one of the things that I've always found fascinating about Buddhism and Zen and just the sort of general principle of it is like, the more feverishly you try and move in that direction, the further away it gets. Yes, and, yes. And that, that caught me when I first, I remember when I first started learning about that and I was like, ah, damn it. <laughs> like, yeah. You mean to tell me I can't just ride at 300 kilometers an hour towards enlightenment and that's not going to work? Uh, I thought for sure that was the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Does any of what we're talking about, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, does any of what we're talking about connect to original nature and can you just describe original yeah. nature for the listener and we'll enter into that conversation yeah cool 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 i'm glad you bring that in so yeah so this term original nature that you hear in zen and actually some other forms of buddhism as well is getting to the heart of what is really sort of the heart of hearts of buddhism which is this experience called awakening and we haven't really touched on it yet We've been talking about all these really good things that meditation offers, but there is a, dare I say, bigger thing, or maybe we just lightly touched on it. There's a major shift that we can go through where, and it may be a, a series of minor shifts that add up to, wow, my perspective has really changed. But it's, it's basically, I mean, the classic case of it would be what Zen calls Kensho, which you just mentioned, exactly. It's a sudden experience where it can have, there's two or three or four ways it can show up. But it, it's a radical thing. It's like, it'll be, man, I've never, this is totally new to me. This is not like an improvement in my state of mind. It's like what it is to have a mind and to be a person has been just turned on its head. It's like suddenly I found that I've never existed the way I thought I had. I'm something totally different from what I thought. And it's, you know, it's a really mind-blowing thing. And very, very beautiful. It can be quite destabilizing if somebody doesn't have... I mean, I, it happened to me when I was 19, out of the blue, without any context. I had no idea what it was. It was just that I knew somehow I'd suddenly totally fulfilled my life and I could die now because I discovered that I was not what I thought I was. I was somehow part of the whole universe. And not, and not as an idea, but I was literally physically the whole universe was immediately present, you know? And they, sometimes they call it oneness or unity because there's only one thing and we are part of that one thing, you know? And it's, it's incredibly beautiful and powerful. And sometimes we see that there's just nothing. It's, this is what 
Buddhism calls emptiness. And that also doesn't sound so nice, but actually it's, it's indescribably beautiful as this scintillating void. And it's just, it's so beautiful, you can't believe it. And you're part of it. You know, so it's it, they're amazing experiences to have. And they can be, I mean, in one sense, they've got to be life-changing because they show us such a different perspective. But usually they just fade. Sooner or later, they kind of fade. And you're back to actually your normal self with your normal neuroses, but you've also seen something really different. But just because you've seen it doesn't mean you're living it. So, But what can happen in time with continued practice and certain kinds of methodology can help this, one of those being koan training, which we mentioned earlier, it is possible actually to have that kind of world or worldview become more stably present, but without being so mind-blowing that you can't function, if you see what I mean. That is a real possibility. That's what original nature means. It means discovering, this sudden discovery that there's a sort of somehow within this very moment, there is a reality that is boundless, it's infinite, it's empty, it's, it's all one. You know, somehow it's here right now, actually. And it's original nature because, I don't know how technical we want to get, but it's original in a sense because, because it's empty, it's possible to say it's always here. It's timeless. It has no time. It has no space. So therefore, it's also original, always here. And this experience we have of this world of, of up and down and in and out and left and right and colors and different people and different beings and different objects and all that, this is an appearance. It's a form that that original nature is taking. At this very instance, it's looking like this moment. There's us talking, microphones. I hope I'm not I hope mine's sounding okay. It's not popping too much. I don't know. I hope not. And uh, th that's what original nature is is doing right now. It's doing Connor. It's doing Henry. But we're both actually inextricably part of original nature at the same time. So, mm. whew, okay. Now you might recognize some of this from Alan Watts because he talks about this kind of thing a lot. You know, and he's brilliant on explaining these basic the basic worldview on understanding what Kensho experiences are and awakening experiences. He's, he's, he's as good as it gets still on explaining all of that. The only area where he's not so good is here and there in practice. I, I love what you, I'm not, I don't want to diss him, I worship him, but, but actually in what you were saying, I love that, I've heard him talk about that, that duality of breathing in and breathing out of bringing awareness to the breath breath is happening by itself coming to me. That duality you're talking about is beautiful. But sometimes he says some things about practice that are uh, not really, they're not quite right, actually. Anyway, that's another matter. But so this, the kind of thing I'm saying probably would be familiar to somebody who's listened to a fair bit of Alan Watts. That's mm. what original nature is. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to state, it's okay to, to have that as a sort of compass heading. I'm sailing in my little ship of practice. I want to be doing my practice. I want to be getting more grounded and patient and open and appreciative and alive and aware. Great. There's a possibility of some kind of weird change that some people talk about. And, you know, maybe it's called awakening, enlightenment. I don't know. And I'm kind of curious about that. But 
I'm not going to get there by trying to make the wind blow faster. I just stay on my course. And it is in my compass heading. Mm. But I'm going to just be patient. Trust the ships traveling that way, you know. I love all of that description. I feel like I'm certainly going to go back and listen to some of that because it was, um, I really appreciate the way that you laid some of that out. And what came to my mind as you were talking about one of the last pieces was I wonder if people who have a psychedelic experience have a kind of contact with original nature or that that's a different experience because what people would describe is I experienced oneness, I experienced nothingness, you know, I experienced complete emptiness. And so I wonder if there's a, a connection, maybe it's just a verbiage connection, maybe it's a language thing that it's something similar. I don't know what the, you know, what the Zen sort of masters would say about that. I mean, Ram Dass talked about, you know, his master taking a monster dose of LSD and and basically nothing happening and sort of like, this is power, right? Like <laughs> it's and and sort of just sort of laughing it off. Um, but you know, I think that, that that moment, they can be such potent moments because they can shake us loose from the myopic track oriented rut that our minds can get stuck in you know i, I remember years ago interviewing a neuroscientist and he said our, our brains are pattern recognition machines and i think that that is beneficial in a lot of ways but i think we can also get stuck in the same pattern the same story right in our marriage in our relationship with our friends in our work and meditation can help us get out of those grooves, right? Is that an accurate description? What would you add to that? It's a hundred percent. I think, I mean, that's part of why I still do it every day is because every day I go to this fresh place that allows me to come back to this moment, meaning any moment in a fresh way. Like, I don't know what this moment's, what it is. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going to happen. I've never, like, I've never been here before. None of us have, actually. It's always a new moment, you know? And so meditation, long-term, can totally bring that. But the, the psychedelic question is really interesting to me. Like, here's a few reflections on it. Like, I think the vast majority of psychedelic experience is not like the kind of thing I've been talking about. Mostly, it's full of uh, all kinds of material. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of visuals that can be, as we know, there can be, you know, distortions of the visual field. There can be auditory stuff. There can be sensory stuff. So there's a lot of material there. Within that, if the dose is right, meaning quite high, people can have sudden glimpses of what we might consider an awakening experience. I know of that happening for sure. But the downside, I mean, the good side is it can happen, you know, and it's more reliable than, hey, sit on the cushion for 15 years and it might happen, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's good in that sense. Take, you know, three grams of some really strong psilocybin and yeah, probably something's going to happen similar, maybe, mm. maybe. The downside is like, number one, it hasn't happened by studying your ordinary consciousness. I mean, the, the, the most mind-blowing thing is that all that stuff I was just talking about, 
is about ordinary consciousness. It's not about some weird altered state of mind. It's about the very nature of ordinary experience. That's the thing that's most important about it. We're mm. actually not going to some weird place where it all looks like the way I said with original nature and all that. No, it's about this ordinary experience right now, sitting here. It's just started to rain outside. You know, it's beautiful here in Santa Fe. We're having our conversation. And this very moment, all those things I said are true of this very moment right now. It's about ordinary experience. So, so that's the caveat. Now, the other thing is, God, you know, recently I tried, I, I, I haven't been a psychedelic user. I, I have a tiny bit, but the very first time I took a psychedelic, I'd already had this explosive awakening experience back when I was 19. So a few years later, I tried acid, LSD, and it was just like a waste of time. It was like, yeah, it was sort of interesting in some ways. It, was, it had none of the power and clarity and force and revelation that that moment had had. But recently, you know, I've been hearing a lot about 5-MeO. You know, you, you heard about that? Yeah. And so actually I was in a context where suddenly I could try it. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll try it. And I did a, I did a hard hit on it, you know. I was with a little group who were using it and, and in a fairly uh, kind of deliberate, coordinated kind of way. They were, and it's, it, I'll tell you, I mean, really, I just went to where I often go. Like everything fell away. There was just nothing except an overwhelming feeling of love. It was like there was, there was nothing at all. all, all phenomena gone. Just this, ah, overwhelming love. But that actually wasn't, it wasn't unfamiliar to me. So to somebody who hadn't done the kind of exhaustive, med well, not exhaustive, but a lot of meditation training that I've done, it would be great that they could get a taste of that if they did. But funny, most of the people there didn't, didn't get that. They, they were dealing with material, you know, mm. that they needed to release and stuff, which is cool. I mean, I, I think it's all cool. <laughs> all of it's cool but but i do think that um it's important not to lose the most important thing not to lose sight of with psychedelics is that awakening is about ordinary experience it's discovering what ordinary experience actually is that, that's the most important thing about it it's not going to some weird place yeah yeah i think that's a very important part of the conversation because I think for you know I think when people hear enlightenment and these types of things there's like this special state that you're going to right. and I don't know if we talked about it in the last conversation or not but I think you know I've ex experimented extensively in some ways with psychedelics but also with meditation and and what I've said to a lot of people is the experiences that I've had in everyday normal life or through meditation have been equally as powerful as some of the greatest revelations from my psychedelic experiences. And it's true. You know, I've like, I remember this one moment in Italy where I was standing looking out over olive orchard fields as far as I could see. And I just remember sitting down on this wall because we were in this, this sort of like white stone uh, house and there was just this wall around. I remember sitting there. And having this moment where I just looked out and my gaze sort of 
you know, blurred for a moment. And all of a sudden it was like, I was all of that. It was just all of it. And it, and it was really, I mean, it freaked the crap out of me at first. Cause I was like, what was that? You know, like, what was that? And, and it just, it took my breath away. It was awe-inspiring. It was wondrous in a way that I'll never have the language to describe. Oh, beautiful. But that, that, that's original nature, Connor. That's yeah. a glimpse of original nature. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was really wondrous. And so, yeah, I've always been an advocate of meditation and maybe, maybe I should be more so, but I would, I really want to be mindful of our time. So your app is called The Way, which I, I believe that's correct, right? It's called The Way. Mm-hmm. And from my understanding, I did a little bit of research on it as we were, as I was prepping for this. And from my understanding, because I haven't tried it yet, but I'm very excited to use it. You have one pathway f- f- yeah. for it, because which is interesting because you know I've used Sam Harris's app, and you, you can there's so much content on there. It's like a you know Lollapalooza of meditation content, which is cool. Uh, I've used a bunch of other apps where there's a lot of different teachers and whatnot. But how did you approach building a meditation app? Like that's just a, a wild track to, to go on. So let, maybe let's just start there. Yeah. The uh, invitation to start building it or to start pitching it came from a Zen, a guy who studies with me, who's, who's got a, a significant place in the tech world. And um, I realized that uh, there was a lot of, there was a major gap because all the, all the other major players, and there's a ton of them, and they're great. And I love them, actually. Sam Harris's app has just been fantastic for me personally. But they, they all have a kind of Netflix model, maximized choice. And w- I was hearing from a lot of people, and we, as we started researching, this was, confer- this, was, this was confirmed, you know, that people are actually overwhelmed by the choice. They've got decision fatigue. They want to be told what to do. And I have a kind of methodology that I've been leading people through, right through the pandemic and the online trainings I offer called Original Love. I've got a book coming out about it as well, actually, in July. But that, that process leads people through really developing their mindfulness carefully, then getting into more of a sense of connectedness and support, then starting to get into flow states through meditation, and then coming to awakening. So it's a kind of sequential journey that is actually, I really think is kind of sensible because you're, you're getting all these major building blocks in place so you've got a balanced, integrated, wholesome practice that acknowledges all the major dimensions of practice, which are especially about mindfulness, but also about connecting more, and definitely about finding flow states, which are very rewarding and fulfilling in and of themselves. And they're a major part of meditation training traditionally. You know, they call it samadhi in the traditions. And then, of course, the big kahuna, awakening breaking out of the sense of being separate. But if you've only got mindfulness, you're kind of missing out on all this good stuff. And on the other hand, if you're only shooting for awakening, you're actually missing out on a lot of really good, maybe more foundational stuff, I don't know, but really valuable stuff that's going to be so helpful in your life. And actually, should you start experiencing awakening, that earlier stuff is going to help you integrate it into your life. So the app I just said, well, screw it. You know, I don't want to give people choice. I'm going to teach them you know, the best way I know how. And some will hate it, but some will think, actually, 
you know what? I want that now. I've been doing two or three years jumping around and I don't know what to do next. Give me a course that I can follow for a year or longer and that will really take me in these very positive directions. So that, that was the thinking behind it. And my nephew, Jack, also Shukman, you know, was, uh, he's a really cool guy. He's had 10 years in corporate sector, you know, uh, as a young man and decided he was sick of it, took a year off, surfed and traveled and started meditating. And he was looking for a new project. And we were really lucky. We, we had some funding and, and thanks to Jack's efforts and, and mine to some extent too. And we, and we built it now and we're in a beta version and launching soon, we hope. So, you know, it's looking good so far. Very cool. Well, when it's, <clears throat> when it's live, we will be sure to share it out. Cause I think, I mean, I love the concept. As soon as I read about it, I was like, well, that makes a, a ton of sense. Like I like the notion of, cause it sort of follows a Zen methodology, right? Of you have to, you have to achieve the step in order to move on to the next one, right? You have to have the, the foundation because there, there are stories of people, even in meditation, having some type of experience that's you know, sort of bigger than what they can hold or, yeah. or sort of confront or deal with. And that can be not just disorienting, but you know, it can be rough on the other side of yeah. that. There's no other way to say that. <laughs> just, it can just yeah. be rough. Yeah. It can be brutal. Um, That's right. So I really, That's right. I really appreciate that. So we'll have the link. Can people check that out? If we link the show into the show notes right now for people to sign up for like a wait list or? Yeah, they totally can. Yeah, we'd okay. love to do that. I'll- okay, great. Thanks. And and where can people learn about the about the book Original Love? Oh yeah, that if at my website henryshukman.com. Now, do you want me to just jump on a minute of coans? Let's do one one minute. One minute. Or do you want to just save it for another time? Uh, I think we should. Well, that's a good. Let's save it because koans are something that I'm very interested in. That I think we need to give a proper tip of the hat to. Not not a one minute because I feel like we'll just describe what they are and then yeah. that'll sort of be it. So we'll we'll revisit. Yeah. We'll have part three, uh, maybe post launching of the app in your book, and and we'll uh, great. We'll have you back on and we'll we'll jam on all things koans and we'll and we'll talk about original love. We'll talk about the book a little bit more in, in depth. Wonderful. All right. Well, Henry, we'll have all the links for your stuff in the show notes and uh, for everybody to share this episode with somebody that they know will enjoy it. I always find that these are the episodes that like, you know, we send to our friends, we send to our loved ones, we listen to with our partner, you know, we give them a little nudge and maybe maybe we start meditating in the living room. Uh, I've gotten in the habit of my, my son, just on a, a final closing note, in the morning, I do stretches and incorporate like yoga stretching and my son does it with me a whole bunch and then i've gotten in the habit of doing breath work and meditation in the living room i don't do my full meditation there because that would be impossible because he loves to come and climb on me and but he does sit with me now he'll sit and he'll breathe and so he knows he knows the cue right he'll pull out the meditation cushions and we'll sit and we'll breathe and He'll close the eyes for you know about ten seconds and then off he goes. But it's you know it's it's a start. You it's know, a start. It's great. I I have two sons who are now young adults. You know, and and one of them in particular, no, actually both of them would at times come and I'd be doing my meditation and then I'd become aware. Hey, one of them's just sitting next to me in trying to be in the same posture, and then <laughs> sit there silently for a few minutes and then huh, enough of that. Run off. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome well yeah Henry, it's very it's, sweet 
Uh It's been uh, an honor to have you back on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And uh, like I said, we'll have the links to all your stuff in the show notes. And until next week, team, this is Connor Beaton signing off.